Yay old man. Another episode of Yay Nay or Ma presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. And once again, I am rather late this week, although I did give you warning that that was a possibility last week because I had a special screening on a Wednesday this week, which, as it turns out, didn't end up the way I hoped it would, but more on that later. But yes, I am rather late and I have. A rather full and a rather interesting episode for you. Given full reviews in this episode are the cinematic releases, the latest family-friendly animated feature, DC League of Super Pets, the National Geographic documentary, Fire of Love, the special anime-released film that was out in the middle of last week, The Deer King. And on Sky Cinema, through home media, we have another animated feature, Paws of Fury, The Legend of Frank. Actually, this is a rather animation-heavy episode, isn't it? And we've also got the subversive action movie, available through Disney+, Plus, The Princess. Those are the films that I'm going to be giving full reviews to in this episode, but I also want to remind you that the Persian film Hit the Road was also out this week. I have already seen it at the Film Bath Festival, and if you go back to my Film Bath Festival special, you'll hear my full review of it. It is the debut feature from Panna Panahi, the son of Jafar Panahi the dissident filmmaker who, despite being banned from making films by the Iranian authorities for over a decade now, continues to make movies, and now his son is getting in on the act. And it's a rather good film, about a road trip across Iran with a somewhat typical family, mother, father, adult son, and annoying little shit of a little brother, But this is the last road trip these people will ever be taking because they're going to the border because the adult son needs to flee the country. And this is the last time this family will all be together. So it's got a sense of melancholy. It's got a sense of danger. Will they make it? Will they manage to evade the authorities? And it's also got moments of genuine humour and absurdity. And like I said, the, this sort of 10, 11-year-old boy who's also in the car is an annoying little shit, and is supposed to be an annoying little shit. So yeah, it's got lots of stuff in it, and I did like it. So yes, Hit the Road, the Iranian film, is out this week as well. And if you want to hear my full thoughts on that, you can go back to my Film Bath Festival special. But in this particular episode, I will be reviewing DC League of Super Pets, Fire of Love, 
The Deer King, Pools of Fury, The Legend of Frank, and The Princess. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen DC League of Super Pets is the latest glossy, family-friendly CG animated movie from Warner Animation Group, who has previously brought us the Lego movies and is also an adjunct to the DC Extended Universe, I guess, for Warner Brothers. It is directed by Jared Stern and Sam Levine, both making their animated feature-length debuts. Jared Stern has been a writer on various movies, including both the Lego Ninjago movie and the Lego Batman movie. And Sam Levine has been working in the animation industry for a decade, and now he's finally stepped up to the director's chair. Weirdly, the only feature-length film that either man has directed in the past is Jared Stern did a live-action film called Happy Anniversary a few years back, which ended up on Netflix, which, given the rest of his IMDb page, seems a little bit out of left field. But nevertheless, Jared Stern and Sam Levine direct, and Jared Stern and John Whittington write, and John Whittington has also written Lego Ninjago movie and Lego Batman movie, and he also wrote Sonic the Hedgehog 2, or I'm guessing was one of many (laughs) writers on Sonic the Hedgehog 2, but nevertheless. Here we are with DC League of Super Pets, in which Crypto the Super Dog voiced by Dwayne Johnson, is the loyal companion and best friend of Clark Kent slash Superman, voiced by John Krasinski. But Crypto the Superdog is starting to realise that the relationship and incipient engagement between Superman and Lois Lane, voiced by Olivia Wilde, will soon affect his relationship with his master. So feeling jealous and out of sorts and never having had to interact with other animals, John Krasinski, Superman, makes the not unreasonable decision, maybe it's a good idea to socialise my super dog with other animals. So they go to a rescue shelter and meet various animals. Ace, voiced by Kevin Hart, is a boxer dog who looks out for everybody, is protective of everybody, is basically the leader. There's PB, a pot-bellied pig, voiced by Vanessa Bayer, who is very self-conscious and also a huge fangirl of superheroes. There is a squirrel named Chip, voiced by Diego Luna, who is incredibly anxious. There's a short-sighted turtle named Merton, voiced by Natasha Leon. And there's also a hairless guinea pig, voiced by Kate McKinnon, named Lulu. And it turns out that this guinea pig was once a test animal in the labs of Lex Luthor, voiced by Mark Maron. Similarly to her former human owner, Lulu, the hairless guinea pig, wants to take over the world. 
And when a chunk of orange kryptonite shows up and gives all these rescue animals superpowers, maybe Kate McKinnon can finally take over the world as she's destined to do, despite the fact she's a hairless guinea pig. So will crypto learn to cooperate with other people or other animals? Will he accept the fact that he is no longer the best friend of his master, John Krasinski? And will he accept Lois Lane, played by Olivia Wilde, into his life? And can they foil the nefarious schemes of this guinea pig, Kate McKinnon? So I was incredibly dubious about this film, DC League of Super Pets. It just seemed like such a silly idea. I mean, this is what we're spending our time and effort on, making an animated movie about super pets? Really? This is what we're doing? But I actually rather enjoyed myself watching DC League of Super Pets. I probably should have looked up beforehand and realised that the people working on this were also the people or some of the people working on the Lego Batman movie, because I think the Lego Batman movie and DC League of Super Pets actually share quite a lot of the same DNA. What we have here is a somewhat self-aware, somewhat tongue-in-cheek approach to this material. This is a superhero movie, I mean, on in the broadest senses of the term, this is a superhero movie, but this is a superhero movie that knows it's a superhero movie and occasionally makes reference to it, usually coming out of the mouth of Mark Maron, Lex Luthor's assistant, Mercy Graves, voiced by Maya Erskine. And this is showing, I think, the care that was taken in the script for this film, I mean, knowing where we are, knowing where we have been, and creating something interesting. Because here we have a movie which is centred around a character, Crypto the Superdog, which has been around for a very, very long time. When they started doing Superboy comics in the 1950s, showing a teenage Clark Kent growing up in Smallville, what all-American boy wouldn't have a pet dog? So when they had Superboy in the comics, in 1955, Crypto the Superdog showed up. And when you think about it, it is a very, very 1950s attitude. This dog, which has exactly the same powers, exactly the same heroic attitude, as the human he is next to. It's very old-fashioned and, quite frankly, a little bit silly. But the occasional silliness of this premise is counterbalanced by Mercy Graves. Now, Mercy Graves is a character who first showed up in 1996 in the Superman animated show and has since gone on to 
be a comic book character and appeared in various of the live-action DC TV shows as well. So Mercy Groves is now an established character in the DC universe, yet she showed up in 1996, 40 years after Crypto the Superdog, and has a very, very different attitude. When Lex Luthor says, This orange kryptonite shall make me great, I mean, Mercy Graves essentially rolls her eyes and says, Oh, great, another kryptonite scheme. I mean, knowing where we're coming from, I mean, knowing the patterns that go into a superhero narrative. And Mercy Groves undercuts everything every time she's on screen. And the fact it's voiced by Maya Erskine, I really, really like. I mean, Maya Erskine is an actress I really like. I first saw her in a low-budget indie comedy called Plus One, which was surprisingly good. And actually, I'll be talking about Plus One a little bit later in the show at the end of the episode. So, yeah, more on that later. But, yeah, I love Maya Erskine. And the deadpan way she plays Mercy Graves to a quite frankly incompetent Lex Luthor, who is still taking credit for everybody else's schemes. I mean, when remarkably this guinea pig voiced by Kate McKinnon actually manages to do great damage to the Justice League. Mark Maron, Lex Luthor, takes credit for it. And I think this demonstrates another thing which is in the film. I mean, it's not a very big part of the film, but it's definitely in there. And it makes me appreciate the film all the more. Because the way that this guinea pig, Kate McKinnon, interacts with her owner slash colleague, Lex Luthor, voiced by Mark Maron, I think is a good demonstration of a toxic male relationship. As far as this guinea pig is concerned, you know, we were colleagues. I am a genius, even though I'm a guinea pig, and we were working together to take over the world. And as far as Lex Luthor was concerned, she was just, you know, one of many guinea pigs. And, oh, yeah, it's even weird. And now you've lost all your hair. So it was a very one-sided relationship. And the devotion and the dedication that Kate McKinnon has to Lex Luthor, to Mark Maron, is very notable. And the fact that it's called out just how toxic this relationship was and how unhealthy it was, I think really stands out. And despite being you know, a supervillain in the shape of a guinea pig, Kate McKinnon does end up in an interesting place by the end of the film, and a more healthy situation is developing. I mean, as is a more healthy relationship with Crypto the Superdog, voiced by Dwayne Johnson, because not only has he learnt to cooperate and arguably has a genuine friendship with Ace the Bathound, who gets adopted by Batman, voiced by Keanu Reeves which is really weird casting, but it actually works surprisingly well. Keanu Reeves playing Batman. But anyway, Kevin Hart has been adopted by Batman, and I think there's a genuine friendship between Crypto and Ace by the end of the film, and also a genuine acceptance of the relationship status of John Krasinski in being engaged to 
Olivia Wilde by the end of the film. So, yeah, I mean, there's acceptance along the way and the gradual realisation of what is going on in Crypto's mind. You know, I share the bed with my owner, Clark Kent. Well, of course, except for the nights where Lois stays over. And one of the other people, be a cor- I think it's a, a corgi, which distractingly, there's a couple of British voices which get shoved into this. I mean, Munya Chihuahua was apparently that corgi. But yeah, I don't like it when companies do that and have a specific English cast rather than an American cast. But yeah, I didn't like that. But anyway, I think it's the corgi that says, um, yeah, you're being pushed out. I mean, the same thing happened to me when my owner found her new fiancé and they pan over and it's two women kissing, which, nice progress, inclusivity, all that kind of stuff, and I'm betting that little clip got cut out in places like Russia and the Middle East. But anyway, there's a lesbian couple in this movie, which is great. And it also makes the point that this is what happens to dogs. When a relationship, a bond forms with humans, I mean, when marriage enters the picture the pets get pushed to the side and that's what's happening and learning to accept that and understand that is the journey or one of the journeys that crypto has to go on and i think it's done very very well it's the typical pattern for this type of film we have a generally open generally understandable plot i mean there's nothing too outstanding or too original in the plot Perfectly understandable, perfectly acceptable, pretty basic stuff. There's a few gags here and there for the adults. I mean, there's a reference to Animal Farm, which is going to go way over the head of most of the people in the audience, but I appreciate it's in there. There's a subplot involving kittens, which I think is really, really cute. And that's going to be funny for the, the children and the adults. I mean, there's you know, an evil kitten gets blown up off screen and you hear, I've still got eight left. And yeah, it's that kind of thing. And the cuteness of the kitten is basically their superpower. And there's you know, other adult references as well. You know, There's a headline that comes up towards the end of the film. You know, billionaire actually goes to jail. And at one point, Lex Luthor says, well, yeah, of course I've got a rocket. I'm a billionaire. All billionaires have rockets. It's that kind of thing. I mean, there's references that the adults will find humorous. Lots of fun, knockabout hijinks for the kids. And I think the right balance is struck. Yes, this is very basic stuff, but I like the fact it is referential. I like the fact that it knows the canon, it knows the pattern of these superhero movies. It actually, as well as reminding me a lot of the Lego Batman movie, which had a similar tone, it also strongly reminded me of Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which is an incredibly underrated animated feature from a few years back. I loved that movie. That's still actually the wallpaper on my laptop because I love the poster for that movie so much. But yeah, I mean, that kind of self-referential humour and fourth wall breaking. We are in a superhero movie and we know we're in a superhero movie and we're going to reference it. I really like that. So, 
Yeah, I mean, that, I think, is just enough to tip this relatively generic, relatively standard movie above the line. And for me, DC League of Super Pets, available in the cinemas, is, for me, a yay. Next up, we have the documentary Fire of Love which is directed by Sarah Doser, who is mostly known as a producer of documentaries and in the past has produced the acclaimed documentaries Audrey and Daisy, An Inconvenient Sequel and The Edge of Democracy. As a director, she has previously done a film called The Seer and the Unseen, talking about the Icelandic financial issues through the prism of elf mythology in Iceland. That sounds strange. And now she has directed this film, Fire of Love, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year, where it won an award for its editing. So an acclaimed documentary, which has been produced by National Geographic, and I would not be at all surprised this film ends up amongst the contenders for the documentary feature Oscar next year. So, I went along to see Fire of Love. At a special screening on Wednesday evening, so much later in the week than I like to do these things, but there was a special introduction being given by the incoming head lecturer at the Earth Sciences Department at Bristol University, at the Watershed Cinema. So I thought, okay, that sounds good. I will make the effort to watch that special screening. And unfortunately, I missed most of the introduction because I left my house a little later than I was intending to and therefore got caught up in rush hour between Bath and Bristol, which was exacerbated by extensive roadworks in the centre of Bristol. So. I only caught the tail end of the introductory speech by Professor Alison Rust of the University of Bristol. And honestly, I really, really hope she's better when she has a class plan in front of her because she was not a comfortable public speaker in front of a cinema screen full of film lovers. But yeah, I caught a little bit of it and. Apparently she's working with Maurice Kraft's brother on a volcano theme park, which I would have liked to hear more about, but the bar where she was having a little discussion afterwards was far too crowded and I needed to get home. So yeah, unfortunately my plans did not work out so well as I was watching this, but nevertheless I did watch the movie Fire of Love, which is about the husband and wife volcanology team of Katja and Maurice Kraft who were French, and in the early, mid-1960s, were at the forefront of a radical reinterpretation of Earth sciences. With plate tectonic theory confirmed, a whole new generation of volcanologists emerged, of which the crafts were at the forefront, getting very, very close to erupting volcanoes and getting astonishing photographs, astonishing film footage, and lots and lots of scientific data. And basically from the ground up, 
completely reinvented volcanology. And they spent 30-odd years going all around the world to erupting volcanoes, trying to understand them, trying to warn people, look, this particular volcano is just about to blow up and you need to evacuate. And they weren't always successful. And there was one situation where the Colombian government didn't listen to them and 25,000 people died. So, yeah, that's uh, a heavy burden to bear. But this is a very, very dangerous job. And in 1991, unfortunately, the crafts were consumed by a pyroclastic flow in Japan, alongside other volcanologists and journalists who were documenting this eruption of Mount Unzan. But the crafts did leave a massive archive of photos and video. I mean, they made their own videos in a lot of ways. They were the Jacques Cousteau's of volcanology in the 1970s in France. And this massive archive has been given to Sarah Dozer and made into a documentary which is being released onto National Geographic. With a voiceover by Miranda July, which is a very, very strange choice. Miranda July is a very, very independent, very, very quirky filmmaker. She's weird. She's married to Mike Mills, so I think it's a genuine debate who's the most talented filmmaker in that particular household. But I did really, really like Miranda July's last film, Kajillionaire. But she's weird, and it's a weird choice to have her as the voiceover in this. And I think that's the starting point for what I think is wrong with Fire of Love. I mean, don't get me wrong, the footage of volcanoes that are in this movie is astonishing. It's breathtaking stuff. The awe-inspiring power of nature, all that kind of stuff, and the bravery and the determination of these people who willingly go very, very close to volcanoes in order to understand them, in order to help the world be a better and a safer place. The bravery of that situation is unparalleled. So, yeah, this is, in a lot of ways, an awe-inspiring movie. But the voiceover gets very, very pretentious. There's lots of stuff here about, you know, they were learning the heartbeat of the earth and what were they thinking, what were they feeling in these particular moments and putting actual emotions, actual insight into the motivations of these people who are, you know, dead 20-odd years. And how miraculous it was that these people who grew up 20 kilometres apart in Alsace ended up falling in love and having this wonderful career and learning all these things and making the world a better place and making our understanding of the world better. Wasn't it so amazing that, you know, 20 kilometres apart and this was the, the outcome? I mean, well, yeah, they grew up 20 kilometres 
a part in Alsace, so they both went to the University of Strasbourg. It's not that complicated. I mean, the metaphysical approach that is often put out there by the voiceover, this idea of the the mystery, the mysticism almost, of this relationship. I mean, our relationship with the Earth and their relationship with each other and their bravery and finding out these things, I mean, and getting these wonderful images. I mean, and like I said, the images are astonishing, the breathtaking footage of these erupting volcanoes, which were taken by the crafts in their day-to-day lives. I mean, it's really, really impressive stuff. But the voiceover is just so goddamn pretentious. It kind of feels to me that Sarah Doser is heavily inspired by the very abstract metaphysical approach to documentary making that Werner Herzog is doing. I mean, going into a cave with ancient rock paintings and asking the people, but do these paintings dream? I mean, really, that's the approach you're going to take? But that's Werner Herzog. I mean, there's, there's only one Werner Herzog and... God love him, but he's a weirdo. And I think Ceridosa has the same kind of approach here. And it actually makes me a little bit interested in Ceridosa's last film as a director, The Seer and the Unseen, which I haven't seen. But according to IMDb, is a magic realist documentary about invisible elves, financial collapse, and the surprising power of belief. And now I've seen Fire of Love, I'm intrigued by what that film is actually going to be. But, you know, certain people liked it. It did win awards at festivals. But, yeah. This is a film which has two distinct things going on at the same time, as far as I'm concerned. On the one hand... There's the extraordinary story about these very talented and genuinely revolutionary scientists. I mean, in several ways, there's actually a, f- a photo used in this documentary of a front page of a French newspaper where you can see Maurice and Catcher Craft at a Vietnam protest in 1968 or 1967. But anyway, these were revolutionary scientists in more ways than one completely re-evaluating and making our understanding of volcanoes radically different to what it was before, and being amongst the first and amongst the most prolific to get very, very close to volcanoes and actually you know, take samples. I mean, Catchercraft was a geochemist, so her analysis of the gases and so on which were released by volcanoes were crucial to our understanding of it. And Maurice was a bit more flamboyant. He was a filmmaker. I mean, and while the crafts self-described themselves as poor filmmakers, Saradosa convincingly makes the argument that, no, these were actually talented filmmakers as well as being talented scientists. And I, I think the parallels to Jacques Cousteau are also relevant. I mean, certainly in France, I mean, I would have loved to have a, an actual discussion with Professor Burt, but 
it seems to me that at least in France, the crafts were as famous and as popular as Jacques Cousteau. And I think they built up on that. I mean, because similarly to Jacques Cousteau, in most of these pieces of footage we see of the crafts on volcanoes, they're wearing red knit caps, as Jacques Cousteau's crew always did. So, yeah, I mean, being very aware of their public perception, their public image, and you know, being a populist approach to science, as well as having some genuinely original and genuinely insightful thoughts about volcanoes and radically reevaluating our history with volcanoes. I mean, these were remarkable people who made remarkable films, and they do deserve a tribute. But this voiceover does bother me. I mean, it's far too pretentious. It's far too metaphysical. And overall, I think it slightly reduces my feelings about the film. So while I do think Fire of Love is a great documentary in a lot of ways and well worth watching, would not be at all surprised if it does end up as a strong contender for documentary feature Oscar this coming cycle. The voiceover is definitely not to my personal taste. So that reduces a little bit. So for me, Fire of Love, available cinematically, and no doubt within a couple of months it will be available on the National Geographic channel, but Fire of Love is for me a very high meh. And then we come to the anime The Deer King, which was given one of those limited essentially one night only releases in the middle of last week so i would be surprised if you could still readily find the deer king in cinemas but i watched it i did tell you it was coming so hopefully you will have access to it if that's your kind of thing and actually i may as well say in two weeks time there's going to be another one of these anime special releases fortune favors lady nikuko which was actually eligible for last year's animated feature oscar didn't get around to it and i'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks but yes the deer king did get a release it is directed by masashi ando who has been a senior animator for various high profile things he was a senior animator on spirited away and when Marnie was there things like that and it's also co-directed by Masayuki Miyagi, who has a long career in anime as well, although nothing particularly notable in the English-speaking world. This film, The Deer King, is based on a novel by Nahoko Uehashi, who is apparently a very big deal fantasy author in Japan. She's won awards all around the world for her YA fantasy novels. One of her book series has not only been inevitably adapted into an anime, but also a live action series. So Nahoko Uehashi seems to be a really big deal. And this is one of her other projects, which has expanded into a series of books. As far as I know, this seems to be based on the first book in the series and tells the story of. A world in conflict. About a decade ago, the aquifer 
Kingdom was annexed and is now under the control of the Zol Empire, which is still resented by certain aspects of aquifer nobility, but they're keeping their head down and biding their time. At the beginning of a film, a salt mine, which is basically run by slave labour, the Zol Empire is whipping people and beating people in this salt mine. And one of these people is a once noble warrior named Van, who was part of a tribe which rode deer. He is the Deer King. He is a legendary fighter, a hero of the Aquifer people, but now he has been brought low. He has been captured as a prisoner of war. His wife and son died in an epidemic several years ago. He has lost all will to live, but he is surviving in this salt mine. One day this salt mine is attacked by disease-ridden wolves. I mean, basically rabid dogs. But this is a mystical complaint that so scared the Zol Empire several decades ago that they basically gave up on a certain aspects and haven't completely taken over Aquifer. But this plague-ridden dog has suddenly returned and attacks this salt mine, during which Van is bitten, as is a young girl named Yuna, and not wanting this young girl to end up dead, Van rescues her and tries to run away from both the Zol Empire, who is concerned about his background, and also these plague-ridden dogs. And eventually we end up in a situation where the Zol Empire is desperate to get his hands on him. The scheming remnants of the Aquifer royal family also wants to get his hands on him, and possibly it would be expedient if he just died. And he is going on a quest with a female assassin who wants him dead, and a mystical doctor who is trying to cure the recurrence of this plague which has been brought by the dogs. So will this taciturn and grieving man have his heart warmed by having to look after this young girl who can't look after herself. I mean, this is so young wolf and cub. In a lot of ways, this is a very, very predictable movie. But it's absolutely fascinating it's come out now. Essentially, broadly speaking, This film, The Deer King, is about epidemiology. It is about this mystical plague which is spread by these dogs and the efforts to cure it and the efforts to understand it. I mean, why does it only seem to affect people from Zol? I mean, aquifer people seem immune from this disease. Why? I mean, is it a physical reason? Is it a mystical reason? And this priest doctor, as he is described in the film, who eventually becomes part of this group, is trying to understand it. I mean, this is 
ultimately about epidemiology. It is about understanding and learning about a plague and trying to cure it. Which seems remarkably prescient in today's society, doesn't it? And it's really, really weird timing since this was announced as coming into production in 2018 and then eventually got delayed because of the pandemic. I mean, it's very much like the fact that just at the start of the pandemic, there was a brand new TV adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand, which was astonishing timing. I mean, even the absolute best timing or the absolute worst timing, I haven't decided which, but yeah. This is an anime about epidemiology, and that's just remarkable. And that is something to hang on to. And I didn't know going into this film that it was an adaptation of a novel. In fact, the first in a series of novels. And now I know that, I think this film makes a lot more sense because the mythology the exposition, the backstory of this film is very, very dense, very convoluted. And in certain places, you're just struggling to keep up. And I'm sure in a novel, in a written format, you can go into depth into all these things and really understand them. But when you're just thrown into a situation where you've got to tell a huge amount of story in a two-hour movie, sometimes that doesn't come out so well. And uh, it's very exposition-heavy and, and very convoluted. And it does have pretty basic stuff. I mean, you know, the taciturn man whose heart is warmed by having to look after a young girl. We have survivor's guilt, not only from the war, but the fact that his wife and son died from a pandemic in the past i'm not even sure if it's the same pandemic but anyway and and the fact i don't know that tells you something about how convoluted and how lost you are in certain places there's some interesting stuff here about how different cultures misinterpret each other and occasionally deliberately misinterpret what another culture is doing in order to promote your own agenda and there's so many different overlapping agendas and overlapping cultures. For large stretches of this movie, it is clear that you know, the Deer King Van is on this quest with this female assassin, and the female assassin wants to kill him. But at a certain point, I don't know why she wants to anymore. I mean, at the beginning, yes, she has her reasons. But once she starts actually travelling with the Deer King, why does she still want to kill him? I don't know. And I'm sure it makes sense in the novel, but here we're just not given enough information, and the information we are given is kind of garbled and kind of crammed together. It's a very, very dense, very convoluted plot crammed into a two-hour movie and not always successfully crammed into a two-hour movie. But I do like the fact that essentially this is a high fantasy story about epidemiology. It's about empiricism. It's about the scientific method in a fantasy world. And I really did like that aspect. But it's in a film which 
honestly speaking, doesn't work. I think this might be a situation where, in its native Japan, where I'm sure many people have read the original novel by Nohoko Uehashi, it might have a different approach. I mean, kind of like the later Harry Potter movies, you kind of needed to read the books in order to understand the film. And that might be the same situation here in The Deer King, because as somebody who has never come across this franchise before, never come across this author before, I was kind of lost. So yeah, I mean, there's some good aspects in here. The animation is beautiful. I mean, it's really, really well animated. But the story is so dense and convoluted and at the same time has some very, very standard tropes. I mean, stuff we've seen so many times before about, you know, older man and young girl warming each other and needing each other. And the idea of cultural misinformation very standard stuff so yeah ultimately unfortunately i think the deer king doesn't quite work i mean there's some good stuff in there so it's not a complete wash but i think you can safely say this is not something you need to go out of your way to see which by the time this podcast is released you probably will need to go out of your way to watch the deer king and it's not actually worth it in that situation but regardless of that as far as i'm concerned the deer king is an occasionally frustrating, but in moments, a good movie. So, yeah, for me, The Deer King is a meh. Home movies. Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank, is another family-friendly CG animated movie which has been released here in the UK onto Sky Cinema. So I could just click the button and watch it. So I did. This is a film with a very, very long and very, very tortuous production history. The original version of this film was supposed to come out in 2017, but it has gone through multiple animation studios, one of which has gone out of business, multiple directors. There are three credited directors on this film, one of which has to be there for contractual reasons, but has absolutely nothing to do with the final product. But he worked on it for long enough, in one of its many different forms, that he's still one of the credited directors. And one of the other credited directors is Rob Minkoff, who will always have a place in animation history because he is one of the co-directors of the 1994 Lion King, but seems to have basically retired. He hasn't made a movie since Mr. Peabody and Sherman in 2014, which was actually, in my opinion, very, very underrated. I did like Mr. Peabody and Sherman a lot. But Rob Minkoff basically stepped into this film because nobody else wants to do it. Originally, he was only going to be a producer. So, yeah, this has a very torturous history. And originally, it was called Blazing Samurai and was a remake, a reimagining of Mel Brooks's film Blazing Saddles. And indeed, the title music for this film is still Blazing Samurai. 
So quite why they changed it to the rather inelegant and awkward title Paws of Fury, The Legend of Hank, I'm not sure. But that's what they did. And they've basically transposed Blazing Saddles from the Old West to an environment based on feudal Japan inhabited by cats, where a dog, voiced by Michael Sarah, wants to train to become a samurai and becomes enmeshed in the schemes of the local landlord, voiced by Ricky Gervais, who wants the local town of Kakamucho to be removed because it's spoiling his view. So if you send a dog into this cat village, a place where dogs are banned, then everybody will be up in arms and leave and Ricky Gervais can just demolish the town. And Ricky Gervais can impress the local shogun, voiced by Mel Brooks himself. So yeah, this was clearly a Blazing Saddles takeoff. So this dog is sent into this unsuspecting village where he teams up with an old and drunk samurai voiced by Samuel L. Jackson and he starts training to be a samurai. But can this dog and this cat work together in order to prevent the schemes of the local landlord? Ricky Gervais. Uh, yeah. This is just exactly what you expect it to be. I mean, I was intrigued by the fact that this is an animated feature that was so heavily inspired by Blazing Saddles. Apparently, originally, it was going to be a story about a black samurai helping out a village in Japan, but they changed it to cats and dogs to make it more universal. This is a film, or it seems to be a film, which has been workshopped to death, with so many different companies involved, so many different people involved, so many different countries involved. It's kind of a mess, and it is settled on what is, or what seems to be, the most basic, the most standard approach for this kind of material. I mean, yes, it's you know the underdog, the outsider, literally an underdog, but it's an underdog, an outsider, enmeshing himself in the local community, enmeshing himself in the schemes, and trying to do something about it and finding a new sense of purpose for this old and drunk samurai. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's Blazing Saddles. I mean, and there's not much more to it. And this is one of those films that has a very basic approach and a very crude approach. The humour in this film is often very base, I mean, very lowest common denominator. I mean, the name of the town is Kakamucho, which is a very juvenile, very puerile gag. There's 
lots of stuff here. I mean, trying to be hip and relevant. I mean, people tweet at each other using actual blue birds. There's a telephone system which I have an issue with because it basically works on the idea of Chinese whispers. You know, the idea of whispering something into somebody's ear and, and going all the way down. And that's what the quote-unquote telephone line is. And I kind of have an issue with that. I mean, that is the wrong kind of Asian stereotype. There's also an extensive bit about fireworks. And at one point, they unironically needle drop Gangnam style. So there's Chinese culture, there's Korean culture, not a great deal of Japanese culture, which is what it's supposed to be. And when it is, I'm not sure how well it's done. I mean, there's one moment where, you know, this is a world of cats. So we have a Zen garden, which is used as a Zen garden, but also used as a litter tray. And I cannot decide if that is crudely funny or culturally offensive. Quite possibly it's both. But it's at a very, very base level. And yes, there's certain, you know, clever or mildly clever bits, you know, the idea of actually learning from somebody who's different from you, actually embracing differences. And there's also quite a bit of fourth wall breaking. There's a moment where Michael Sarah says to Samuel L. Jackson, ooh, can you hear that music? That means there's a training montage about to start. I mean, there's a couple of moments like that, which has a similar approach to Blazing Saddles, the original Blazing Saddles. There's also the idea of sexism as well as racism. I mean, there's a little girl, a little kitten in this village whose mother is played by Michelle Yeoh and again I mean so it's just Asia but anyway this little girl is clearly the most clever personal cat in the village and she has all the ideas she has all the schemes but whenever she says something a man takes that idea and takes credit for it himself so, I mean, this is a, a subplot about the dismissal and the ignoring of girls for the sake of the male ego, which is you know, a pretty standard but a, a necessary thing to do. And you know, the idea that this girl kitten is clearly the most clever, the most capable cat in the village, that's fine. But... I think they take it too far when at the end of the movie, this very small, very young kitten gets given a katana. Young girls should not be given swords. I mean, young people should not be given swords. If you are a child, you should not be given a sword. And yet, by the end of the film, that's what happens. I was supposed to be okay with it, but maybe not. Maybe that's going to be a bad idea. And yeah, it's lots of perfunctory stuff. I mean, and even in the moments they do kind of get the Japanese culturized. I mean, they cast George Takai 
in a secondary role and he manages to squeeze not one but two oh my's into the script it's very very basic i mean it's perfectly fine it's a little bit too crude for my personal taste i think the cultural appropriation is occasionally too problematic but it's broadly inoffensive and at least here in the uk you can just watch it on your skybox so on those terms what you may as well i mean yes there's better things out there but i don't think you'll regret watching it it's just a film that's been absolutely processed to death over the five odd years it's been in production how with so many different fingers in the pie too many cooks arguably and yeah it's just there so Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank, here in the UK, is available through Sky Cinema, and for me, it's a pretty low, pretty dispassionate meh. And then we have a movie which has been released onto Disney Plus here in the UK, and in the States, I believe it's available through Hulu, which is The Princess. A revisionist high fantasy action movie starring joey king as the star as the titular princess and directed by leer van kiet now leer van kiet was born in vietnam raised in america as a refugee and went to film school in the states but since then has split his time between the states and vietnam And in Vietnam, he directed the movie Fury, starring Veronica Ngo, who is also in this movie and has a decent Hollywood career ahead of her, I think. She had a very brief appearance in Da Five Bloods, a very brief appearance in one of the Star Wars movies, I believe. And she was also the antagonist in The Old Guard, the Netflix comic book adaptation and the sequel to that's coming so veronica and go is awesome and she's in this film as well but fury is apparently the most financially successful vietnamese movie ever last i checked you can still find it on netflix and i do recommend it i mean i'm not a huge huge fan of martial arts cinema but fury is actually really, really good. And that's F-U-R-I-E is how you'll find it. But off the back of that, Lee Van Kiet has managed to get something of a career for himself to the extent that The Princess is one of three films by Lee Van Kiet which are coming out this year. There's a Vietnamese-language ghost story and there's also an American shark attack movie starring Alicia Silverstone. So, yeah, Levan Kiet is managing to spread himself all around and making this reasonably low-budget action movie in Bulgaria, as so many of these cheap movies are nowadays. 
But this is not Bulgaria. This is a fantasy land where a princess played by Joey King, an actress I'm actually really a fan of. She's come to prominence in the Kissing Booth franchise on Netflix. She was also in the highly acclaimed miniseries The Act. And she's about to be in Bullet Train, which I'm going to be talking about at the end of the movie. So Joey King is an actress on the rise. And she stars as a princess who, at the start of the movie, is at the top of the tallest tower in a beautiful gown and asleep on her bed. And then you realise she's got manacles on. And as the film progresses, we start flashing back to realise that she was supposed to be part of an arranged marriage to a neighbouring prince, played by Dominic Cooper, but she refused. Thinking she wanted a little bit more self-determination, particularly since she's been a very young girl, she's been training with one of her father, the King's retainers, played by Veronica Ngo. So she's a kick-ass princess who knows how to fight with swords and demonstrates as such in the opening scenes of the movie where she quickly dispatches two of the thugs which have been sent to look after her and potentially rape her, although that's never fully explored. But it emerges that Dominic Cooper, alongside his leather-bound, whip-toting consort Olga Kurilenko has taken over the kingdom, has entrapped her parents Ed Stoppard and Alex Reed and her baby sister Caitlin Rose Downey and is fully intending to take over the kingdom. So Joey King has to go from the top of this tower to the bottom of the tower to rescue her family to connect with her mentor Veronica Ngo and try to save the kingdom in a very die-hard style way. So can this medieval-style princess actually kick ass and save the day? I started realising pretty early on into this movie what kind of film this was. This is a very low-budget action movie, filmed in Bulgaria. I mean, it may as well be a sci-fi movie. You know, the Sci-Fi Channel, or Sky Sci-Fi, as it's become known here in the UK. But, you know, that kind of cheap, mass-produced TV movie approach would just make it very quick, very cheap, in Bulgaria or Romania or anywhere where you can get tax breaks, and just have any excuse to have kick-ass action scenes no matter how flimsy this is a very very cheap movie and it's not trying to be all that serious i mean very early on i mean one of the major fights i think it's the second big fight that joey king this princess has is against a guy who is you know essentially twice the size of her and what he's wearing is a loincloth and a full helmet, a plate armour helmet with horns on it, and a loincloth. And that's all this guy is wearing. And I mean, really, what 
kind of world is that practical or appropriate to just be in a loincloth and a helmet, a full-face helmet? At certain points, you swing across this tower, you know, this spiral staircase, through ropes which are very, very conveniently just hanging there in the middle of the stairwell. And you just swing across, you know, swashbuckling and fighting with swords. And yes, this is a film which is made in Bulgaria, so all the extras are Bulgarian and therefore need to be dubbed. And the dubbing has not been done particularly well. I mean, technically, the dubbing has not been done very well. I mean, the ADR, they weren't careful with it at all. And also the voices that are used for these Bulgarian extras, they're all made to sound like East End gangsters. I mean, you may as well have had Ray Winston, Craig Fairbrass and Danny Dyer doing the voiceovers for these extras. And it's really distracting how badly this dubbing has been done. There's one scene where a character is on fire, which is very expensive and very dangerous to do. So they have CGI fire and the CGI fire is absolutely terrible. This is a very, very cheap, very low-budget action movie, a flimsy excuse to string a series of fight scenes together. The only thing that makes this different is, I think the cast is a little bit more impressive than is typical for this type of movie. I mean, like I said, Joey King is an actress on the rise. Olga Kurilenko, Dominic Cooper, Veronica Ngo even, I think, is even a strong list of supporting actors. This is a kind of movie that somebody like Scott Adkins would be absolutely perfect for. I mean, it's a Scott Adkins movie, only it's set in a high-fantasy medieval-style world, and it's got a female protagonist. And once you get on the film's wavelength, once you realise that all this is, is a very cheap, somewhat exploitative action movie, or martial arts movie, then it's okay. The fight scenes are pretty damn good, it has to be said. I mean, the sword play, I mean, Veronica can go, is fantastic at this kind of thing. The villainous Olga Kurilenko, who just kills people with her bullwhip, wearing fantastic black leather. I mean, she's having a whale of a time. And it has to be said, Joey King, I think, worked pretty well as an action star. Apparently, she did a lot of her own fight choreography. I mean, I'm betting they couldn't afford proper fight choreographers or stunt people. And she's pretty convincing. She's pretty good. I mean, obviously, compared to somebody like Veronica Ngo, who's been doing it for years, it shows us up. But she holds her own. And yeah, I, I come out of this film very impressed with Joey King as an actress. But this is trash. I mean, basically, this is trash. But it's fun. I mean, it's entertaining. It knows what it is. It's not trying to be anything much more than trash. And it succeeds at the very, very low bar it's trying to hit. So, yeah, if you want nothing more than a pretty brainless but entertaining action movie with plenty of fight scenes strung together with the flimsiest of excuses, then that's what The Princess is. It's a standard direct-to-video style 
action movie that just happens to have a medieval setting and a female protagonist. And on those terms, it's perfectly fine. So, yes, it's trash, but it's entertaining. The Princess is available on Disney Plus here in the UK, and for me, it's a pretty solid popcorn-infused meh. Coming attractions. Following the usual pattern of recent weeks, there's one wide release this week which is out, and this one I'm actually interested in. It's called Bullet Train, and it was actually released on Wednesday, so it's out as I'm recording this. But in the next episode, I will be reviewing the film Bullet Train, which is directed by David Leach, who is one of the guys behind John Wick and has gone on to do Atomic Blonde and Deadpool 2. So, you know, comedy action stuff is his forte. And he also happens to be a former stunt double for Brad Pitt, who stars in Bullet Train. As an assassin who is growing weary of life and has to do a mission on a Japanese bullet train, only to realise that there are dozens of other assassins who are also on the train. People like the aforementioned Joey King, the Hispanic rap artist Bad Bunny, Brian Tyree Henry... Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Michael Shannon, Sandra Bullock. Really, really good cast. So, yeah, it looks like Bullet Train has the potential to be a lot of fun, and I will be checking that out. Primarily released through Apple Plus TV, but given a limited cinematic release, is yet another animated movie. It's almost like it's the summer holidays or something. This one is called Luck and follows a young woman who is the unluckiest person in the world. Actually, that's a little bit similar to another film I'll be talking about in a minute. But anyway, this is a very unlucky person who manages to find her way into the land of luck, where she is guided by a black cat voiced by Simon Pegg. So. Yeah, that could be interesting. But yes, the animated feature Luck is given a limited cinematic release, and that's how I will be seeing it. But you will be able to find it on Apple TV+. Plus. There's another film coming this weekend, available through Sky Cinema. This is a film which was made for HBO Max in the United States, but given the deals in place between Sky and HBO. This film has ended up on Sky Cinema, and it is yet another remake of Father of the Bride. The same basic premise of an adult daughter coming home and saying, I'm getting married, and this throwing everything into chaos for the family. But this modern version has a couple of twists to it. Firstly, this is an entirely Hispanic family, with Andy Garcia and Gloria Estefan as the parents, and Isabella Merced and Adria Arjona as the daughters. So, really cool Latinx cast. And it's also 
slightly different to the traditional version. I mean, the most recent one being the Steve Martin version, but it was originally done by, I think it was Spencer Tracy back in the 50s. But yeah, the twist in this modern Andy Garcia, Gloria Estefan version is they're actually getting a divorce. And the announcement of their divorce was postponed by Adria Arjona suddenly saying, I'm getting married. So yeah, I mean, Father of the Bride is one of those stories that works no matter how you do it and no matter what era you do it in and no matter what culture you do it in. So, yeah, Father of the Bride is going to be available on Sky Cinema this weekend and that has been added to the list. Arguably, one of the most high-profile films out this week is actually a film which is available through Amazon Prime Video. It's Ron Howard's new film, 13 Lives, about the Thai boys football team Cave Rescue and the divers who did it. Divers being played by people like Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell. So, decent cast. I've already seen a couple of documentaries about this case, including one done by the people who did Free Solo, and that was pretty damn good so yeah having a narrative feature about this story is really interesting particularly when it's done from a high quality filmmaker or at least a mainstream filmmaker like ron howard so yeah 13 lives is definitely added to the list as is a streaming film which is out this week called East of the Mountains. Now, this is a film I've actually already seen. It is largely a one-handed film with Tom Skerritt playing an older man who has a terminal cancer diagnosis, so he determines that he's going to go out into the wilderness, out into the mountains he loved when he was a child and just end it all but things don't go to plan he gets involved in the lives of people in these mountains and you know there's hope no matter how hopeless things seem that kind of approach and tom skerritt was listed pretty low down on the gold derby lists of oscar potential for best actor so i pirated it earlier in the year and it's pretty good. I mean, yes, Tom Skerritt is excellent. I didn't include him in my deliberations for Best Actor. However, I did give this film, East of the Mountains, an honourable mention for Best Adapted Screenplay because it is based on a best-selling book. So, East of the Mountains is out on streaming platforms this week. I have already bought myself a rental, so my personal conscience is clear and i'll be releasing the review i recorded earlier in the year of east of the mountains in the next episode and yeah that's one i basically recommend there's another streaming film i've come across which looks rather intriguing and it's called love spreads which is about a band who is struggling to make their second record. The sophomore slump, so to speak. And the fragile 
genius musician of this group is played by Anya Shawkat, who is an actress I love, and the exasperated and long-suffering producer who needs to get something out of this band is being played by Nick Howe. So yeah, that looks really, really interesting, and I love the fact it's called Love Spreads, the title track of the notoriously difficult second album from the Stone Roses. But yeah, that looks like a a really fascinating film about the music industry. And it looks like it was actually filmed at Rockfield Studios, one of those remote, middle-of-nowhere recording studios which pop up here and there. I think that's where Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody, or maybe that was somewhere else. But yeah, Rockfield Studios is very famous. Oh, I think possibly the Manic Street Preachers. I'm going to have to do some research. But yeah, Rockfield Studios is... Yeah, an iconic place, even though it's in the middle of nowhere in Pembrokeshire. But yeah, it looks like they probably just hired Rockfield Studios during the pandemic and said, we can make a film and why not? So yeah, Love Spreads has been added to the list and that does look very, very interesting. On Netflix, there are a few films have been added to the list. Earlier in the episode when I was talking about Maya Erskine, I brought up the film Plus One, which I actually think is really, really cool. It it starred Maya Erskine and Jack Quaid as a couple who get invited over the course of one summer to a bunch of weddings, so they agree to be each other's Plus One. And of course, this arrangement of convenience isn't going to end up with actual feelings is it but of course it does and in plus one i did like it uh, largely because it mildly subverts that trope but yeah plus one is a film i do recommend and a film is being released onto netflix this week which has almost exactly the same plot two friends agree to be each other's wedding date to keep their families off their backs because the difference in this film wedding season is the fact the two people involved are of Indian descent, South Asian descent. And with interfering and overcompensating Hindu parents, of course, things are getting intense for this late 20s people so all right we'll keep our parents off our back and just be each other's date for these weddings we're both going to have to go to over the summers and of course things are going to happen and sparks are going to fly or at least that seems to be the case and yeah wedding season is a well-worn trope i I believe there's even another film released on netflix either this week or last week which looks like a very cheesy Hallmark version of basically this same story. So, yeah, it's well-worn, but it looks like it's fun, and it's one of those things that's well-worn because it works. And when you add in the cultural differences of being of Indian families or Indian descent, that could be interesting. So, yeah, I do want to check out Wedding Season on Netflix. And speaking of India, there's an Indian film, which I do also want to check out on Netflix this week, called Darlings. About a woman who has a very problematic and, I believe, even abusive husband. 
And when one day he goes too far, this woman and her mother decide to just get rid of him and then try to get away with it, which they're actually not very good at doing it. It looks like kind of a black comedy kind of thing. You know, can we actually get away with bumping off this guy? Or at least it seems that's what the plot is. And yeah, that does look interesting. So I do want to check out the Indian film Darling. And there's also a Mexican film released onto Netflix, which, again, seems to be about the unluckiest woman in the world, similar to the animated movie Luck I was talking about earlier. But this film, Don't Blame Karma, is about a young woman who believes she has been cursed from childhood. And this is manifested by the fact her sister is just about to marry the one that got away her ex-boyfriend is going to marry her sister and how does she deal with this and is it possible that there is actually a curse and you know she can blame karma for all the ills of her life so yeah that could be fun and that's been added to the list already on the list we have persuasion i really do need to get to persuasion that's probably the highest profile film of recent weeks that I haven't got around to yet. There's also the film about the Rwandan genocide, Trees of Peace. There's many, many documentaries on Netflix. Highest priority amongst those is Our Father. There's the animated feature, Chicken Hair and the Hamster of Darkness, and I just love that title. I also want to check out Lena Waithe's film, or it was written by Lena Waithe, Beauty about a young woman trying to become a singer during the 1980s and family issues getting in the way. So that looks like it might be rather interesting. On generic streaming platforms, we have the Mark Duplass COVID-produced movie Language Lessons. Still on Sky Cinema, I haven't yet got around to the small-scale low-key thriller Into the Deep about a woman trapped on a handsome man's yacht. I'm really curious about the erotic thriller Deep Water because we just don't have films like that made anymore. And Anna de Armas seems to be having something of a year because she's in the star of that and she's going to be playing Marilyn Monroe at the end of the year or possibly at the beginning of next year. So... Yeah, the Netflix film Blonde starring Anna de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. That could be very, very cool. And I still want to check out the two art house horror films on Shudder, the Laotian ghost story The Long Walk and the psychological British art house horror A Banquet. So that's my current list. And a reminder that there was one yay on this particular episode. And surprisingly, that is DC League of Super Pets. Yes, it's generic. Yes, it's pretty basic. But it's executed with enough flair and there's just enough self-referential humour and fourth wall-breaking humour that I really gravitated towards DC League of Super Pets. And in what is turning out to be a relatively down year for animation, DC League of Super Pets, I think, is pretty good. So, yeah, it's a yay. It's not a particularly passionate yay, 
but it's a recommendation for a wholesome, family-friendly, entertaining animated movie. So yeah, DC League of Super Pets was a yay. So that brings me to the end of this episode, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>